All right. Hey, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 7. And uh, <clears throat> starting in verse 32. John chapter 7, uh, verse 32. And uh, if you're visiting, we have uh, worked our way up to this. I think this is our 47th message or something like that. And here we are in chapter 7, verse 32. And this is God's word. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. He will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know what uh, a static shock is. It's wintertime, and as you shuffle through your house in your uh, slippers or whatever, uh, or you rub against something, uh, a blanket or something, there's a static shock. You, you pet the dog, and it goes, <coughs> or uh, I'll kiss Tammy, and it'll go, <coughs> and it always freaks her out a little bit because, uh, you know, when, once I kiss her and I shock her, she goes, eh, and I, but I want to go in for more, and she's like, no, you'll shock me again. I'm like, no, it's over. <laughs> I've already released the energy. Uh, so uh, we, can, we can keep on kissing. And so uh, a static shock is uh, electricity that is built up on a, on a surface or in a thing, and it's just kind of sitting there, and it's, it, it's, uh, it's different than a current. A current is flowing. Static electricity is sitting there, and it's, a, it's waiting to have its charge uh, released. Well, antonyms of uh, static um, are dynamic, moving or kinetic, um, a current, um, and uh, that brings me to the Black Panther suit. So in the movie, the Black Panther, his secret, his secret uh, you know, thing that he can do, by the way, I mean, I'd almost rather be killed than watch another superhero movie, but um, I just think it was, it was, it's culturally relevant, and young people watch it, and I thought it was a good idea for me. So um, that's why I went on a Friday afternoon, and I saw the Black Panther. But anyway, his suit is the thing. He's got this high-tech suit, and it absorbs kinetic energy. So when, you, when somebody, you know, shoots bullets at him, or he gets punched, or he gets hit by a car, his suit goes, kind of goes, and absorbs this moving energy and keeps it until he goes, like, back at you. So as he gets hit and stuff, he gets stronger and stronger and has a kind of a blast kind of a thing. Um, and uh, it, it's static until he decides to release it. All right, I say all that to say this. Jesus... Um, for the world, is a kinetic problem. He, um, it's not a static problem. It's not, oh, Jesus existed. He was a guy 2,000 years ago, and I've heard some information about Jesus. And, you know, it's a, it's a historical footnote is what it is. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe all that uh, gobbledygook. But, um, yeah, it's a, he's a, it's a kinetic problem. Um, in other words, you can't do nothing with Jesus. He keeps moving. He keeps coming at you. He's, he's all over the place. He's affecting the world. And now somebody in opposition to that will say, um, I'm so sick of you stupid Christians. 
I mean, you keep saying that you got to do something with Jesus. That's a, that's a very old preached thing. You must do something with this Jesus. And the world looks at that and goes, eh, come on, I'm an atheist. Um, or I'm an agnostic, and I, I, don't, I don't have to subscribe to Jesus. I don't have to do anything with him. I don't even care a thing about him. He doesn't pop in my head all day. I don't, I'm not at work, and I think, oh, Jesus, I have to do something with Jesus. I wish Christians would stop saying that. And for, furthermore, um, Christians are moralistic buffoons, and um, rather than think about them all the time, I just try to block Christians out kind of like a spam uh, phone call. You know, aren't those annoying? Are, is everybody getting spammed all the time, like all day, every day? It's just awful. And uh, it's kind of like, I'm just block Christians and Christianity and their morality and all that stuff out, um, like, like, a, like, like spam. And uh, I would imagine that, uh, that non-Christians get pretty tired of preachers saying that Jesus forces you to a choice and all that. But, folks, um, I understand that. But what about... Um, hundreds of millions of Christians the world over um, and throughout 2,000 years of history and beyond. I mean, uh, the, the, the Old Testament is ours. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The Old Testament is a part of the narrative of, of redemption. All right, so thousands and thousands and thousands of years pointed to Jesus um, and fulfilled in Jesus and followers of Jesus. The whole world is affected by Jesus. At the very minimum, Jesus calls for a decision about himself. Um, When he says, there is only one way to God, and it's me. He doesn't say, I'm a way to God. I'm a way, if you believe in some kind of creator, I'm a way to this creator. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm the way. And he says, I'm the only way. And uh, furthermore, if you don't believe in me, there's a consequence. Consequence is punishment and perishing eternally and separation from God eternally. Well, that's a giant claim. And I say that um, uh, you either say yes or no to that, that 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 has to jab your heart and you have to do something like that. You either dismiss it or you take it to further investigation. But my point is, once you hear the claims of Jesus, you have to deal with the claims of Jesus. You can't just say, he's a nice guy. You can't just say, oh, Christians are um, nice people. You know that uh, Bob in accounting? He's a sharp guy. I really like him. Um, But, you know, he's a Christian. Go ahead and call Bob in accounting insane. (laughs) Go ahead and say, Bob in accounting believes in fairy tales because you, you, can't, you can't accept part, part of Jesus, and uh, you can't accept that his followers are sane if they're following this imaginary person. Uh, once you hear his claims, you have to at least face them and deal with them. And by the way, that doesn't even include, uh, I don't know, Christmas. I mean, Christmas rolls around. Um, how about this? A universal sense of right and wrong. I mean, everybody senses um, a, a right and wrong, and uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, If you murder someone anywhere in the whole world, agreement, it's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? Well, the value of life. Well, who puts value on life? You? What I'm saying is that there are standards out there, and it points you to this ultimate ultimate thing. How about a sense of awe? Why do you feel a sense of awe over that which is grand? Um, Glaciers and uh, oceans and mountains and deep space and the deep ocean. And why do you feel awe? Just because it's big and you're small? No. It points to a creator. It rings of something grander than us, something greater than the universe. How about the origins of the universe itself, by the way? I mean, it is fun to watch people try to wrangle 
you know, it's science, 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 but the thing they can't get is where did all this stuff come from? And it's hilarious. Does anybody enjoy reading about that kind of stuff? It's hilarious to talk about, to hear scientists, I mean, speak in terms that are so far beyond what I can grasp, but, but the, the cuckoo talk, like the origin of the universe was a backward hologram. Well, what does that mean? And even if it was a backward hologram, still, where did all the stuff come from? Who made a backward hologram that shot backward and shot forward, and boom, there was a big bang? Who, where did it all, all come from? You have to ask that. And what I'm saying is um, the Christians claim to know the God who did all that. And it's, it's placarded before the world all the time, um, and, and it, um, it forces a decision about God and about his son and about the Bible and about all these claims to creation and so on. All right, all that stuff said, let's go to our first um, and main idea here, which is, of course, Jesus is a kinetic problem. I forgot to flip that. Uh, this is our first sermon point, which is this, purposely missing details. By the way, as I read this to you, um, as we go over this, this is a, like a weird little frag of information. The, the, the verses 32 through 36, um, most commentators really just don't even know what to do with it. They just like tuck it in the last week. Or uh, I was reading one guy, James Montgomery Boyce, basically took an old sermon from Job out and just preached it and put, put this on top of it. I'm like, dude, I, I don't know that everybody's, I don't know that people are handling this, but I... I I didn't want to just skip over. I, I, think there's, I think there's some awesome stuff in here. So, so bear with me. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Well, let's look at the first part of that verse. What had been overheard? They, overheard, they heard the crowd muttering things. What had been overheard? Well, verse 31, it says, uh, many people believed in Jesus, right? So that uh, many had left him. Most or all had left him, except the disciples. But now people are starting to go, hmm, wait a second, what about this guy? And they say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the Pharisees overhear this, and basically they hear a portion of the people warming up to belief in this Jesus. They hear this, and they're responding to that. Um, and of course, you don't just believe in an unspecified uh, concept. Here's what Jesus claimed. In verse 29, Jesus claimed, I know him, he's talking about God the Father, Yahweh, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And the people are going, huh, I think we we might be believing those claims. And that's what the Pharisees are responding to, that Jesus is claiming divinity, he's claiming origin, he's claiming mission. And uh, that's, by the way, is a wonderful summary of uh, Johannine uh, theology, John's theology. I mean, just in that one verse, I know him, that is knowledge. Jesus claimed a relationship with God personally, even called him father. That's a wild claim. Um, And then origin, uh, Jesus divinely existed with God. That's his claim. And then also the third one, mission, Jesus was sent by God. Jesus is on a mission. He's sent by God to carry out a work that God gave him. And so the Pharisees, who were the religious experts, they catch wind of this and uh, this positive reaction, and they they decide to get to action. Um, And remember verse 30, uh, look at verse 30. It says, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. When Jesus came into town at the beginning of chapter 7, they were were looking for him. They were searching for him. They wanted to arrest him. Um, They knew precisely what Jesus' claims were. And notice the order of things 
in verse 32. It's interesting. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And then it goes on to say, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And so basically what you got is this. The Pharisees were like the, the clergy par excellence. You know, it's funny. I'm straying from my notes here, but the, the, our staff is reading this book. Um, uh, Dr. Young leads this kind of staff development thing every Tuesday afternoon, unless we have a, the, the, the big staff meeting on a Tuesday morning. So once a month, we have a big kind of businessy meeting. But the other Tuesdays, it's kind of staff development, and we have access to Dr. Young unvarnished, and I'm telling you, it's awesome. It's awesome. And uh, but anyway, we're reading this book called Dangerous Calling by Paul, Paul David Tripp. And, uh, you know, he, he's, it, basically the thrust of the book is uh, pastors, don't put your identity in the ministry. Don't, you don't get your identity from the, it, being in the ministry and, uh, and uh, being treated like, I'm a pastor. Do you not understand that I'm a pastor and I have this deep understanding and this education and I'm a pastor and I deserve respect as a pastor? And, uh, you know, I'm reading the book and I'm, I'm like, I'm the opposite because I'm like, I'm a loser. You know, I'm like the, a total other direction. I'm like, I don't belong here. I hope nobody finds out I'm a total fraud, you know? So I, like my problem is the other way, but the answer is the same as to, is the gospel. But all to say, um, the Pharisees were very much, I'm a Pharisee. I mean, morality par excellence. I mean, if you want to, uh, if you want to see what righteousness is, watch me obey the law and live it out. And uh, uh, it was just a very high-minded uh, thing. And they were experts at the law. And, and so the Pharisees are the one who, ones who hear this. And then it goes on to say, the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers. So the Pharisees have gone to the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and by the way, Sanhedrin simply means, you know, those who are seated uh, or the assembly. The Sanhedrin's kind of like this governmental religious body. Every city had one. And then there was a grand uh, Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which is where they are. All right, so the Pharisees, the religious experts hear this and they go, this is very disturbing. And so they go to the Jewish ruling council and they say, this guy is trouble and uh, we need to, the temple guards, the Jewish temple guards to go and arrest him. And just so you know, too, how Roman occupation worked, and this really helps, um, helps us understand what it was like for a Jew to be under Roman occupation. Have you ever watched a mob movie, like the mafia? You know how the mafia works, right? I mean, you're, you're a, you're a, Sloan here is a shopkeeper, and um, he's uh, started a little bakery, and uh, he's, in, uh, he's in the Bronx, and he's got a little bakery, and it's, it's going well, and his wife is helping too, and, and he's got this little successful business. And, you know, they're making ends meet, and they're making some traction, and the business is going pretty well. And one day, a guy walks in and goes, hey, Sloan, uh, 25% of everything you take in is ours now, and I'm going to stop by every Friday, and I'm going to get it. And Sloan's like, hey, man, who are you? And then they kill his dog. And he goes, oh. That's who you are. And you know, they, they don't like to kill you. They, they, take, they do something else. They cut off his wife's finger. Okay, okay, okay. You can have the 25%. And so he's trapped. You know, they've, they've occupied, and he's trapped, and they get money from him, and that's how the mob works. And they say, well, as long as you pay us, we'll protect you. We'll let you, let you stay open. But if you don't, big trouble. Well, it was very much that way with Roman occupation. And it's a good way to understand, like, vassal uh, rulership, V-A-S-S-A-L, rulership. Rome occupies, 
but they say, hey, Jewish people, you know what? We're going to occupy. You're going to pay taxes to Caesar, kind of like the mafia. We're, we're going to occupy. We're going we're to let you stay in business. We're going to let you keep your culture, keep your business, uh, keep all the stuff cooking. And uh, that way they kind of keep the people at peace. There's, not, there's less chance of rebellion and so on. And yet there's full occupation. Well, that's what's happening. Uh, Rome is occupying, but at the same time, there's another um, uh, subculture that exists, and that's why it, they can say, let's send officers to arrest him. They're not saying, get the Roman soldiers to arrest him. They're, they're saying, get the temple guards. We don't like the religious stuff that's going on here with this Jesus guy and his claims, so go get him, and uh, then hopefully we can make a case later uh, for Rome and so on. But it, you understand? It's another layer of governmental system, and so that's what's happening here. So um, what were the details around Jesus' arrest? It says here that they wanted to arrest him. It says here that they, they, uh, the Pharisees go to the chief priests, the ruling councils, and they, the council, and they say, go arrest him. And uh, it doesn't happen doesn't tell us anything about it. What were the details? Did they try to arrest him and Jesus got away? Uh, could they not find him? Did somebody hustle him off? Did Jesus, what, what happened? Why didn't it happen? You know what's so cool about that? Is we don't need to know the details. As we discussed last week, I mean, the whole thing is on God's timetable. And um, we don't need to know these details. And John, doesn't, John, the gospel writer, doesn't care about these details. The Holy Spirit of God doesn't care to tell us about these details. Those are, they're, they're intentionally missing details. Um, how is it thwarted? I don't know. So remember our sermon point, purposely missing details. Um, what are we supposed to see in all that? How does it apply to our lives? Well, as we talked about it last week, Jesus' hour, that is the matter of the cross, had not yet come. His time had not yet come to go to the cross. And the reality of that, friends, and this is, it makes a huge difference for us, the reality of that is his time couldn't have come. They couldn't have arrested and put him on trial and crucified him here. They couldn't have. Furthermore, um, six months later, he will die on a cross. They will arrest him then. He will have a mock trial then. He will be falsely accused then. They will shout, crucify him, crucify him then. And there's no way that it's not going to happen. And um, I, I think that, that that causes some Christians' hearts to bristle with a little bit of confusion. Uh, you know, what about all these details? I mean, are we bots in life? Are we just going through motions and uh, God has everything pre-programmed and it all just kind of, it all kind of happens? You know, um, pause over that. We pray to a God who is sovereign. We pray to a God who can help us, don't we? I mean, why would you pray to a God who's impotent? Uh, we pray to a God who's sovereign. We pray to a God who's on a throne. We pray to a God who moves mountains. Uh, we, we pray to the same God, um, this one who can help. And so when I say that Jesus' death on a cross couldn't have happened early um, and that it absolutely would happen six months later, Fear not. It's not that we're robots and we live this little fatalistic existence. Um, by the way, if it were true, then why, why in the world do we sin? <laughs> it's not like God is, uh, God is tempting us and making us uh, sin. May it never be. The point is that God controls history so deftly 
that it doesn't matter who's got a plan, it doesn't matter if the temple guards are coming, it doesn't matter what's happening. When, when God decrees something to happen, it's going to happen. Um, so much so that the gospel writer doesn't even think the details of an, an attempted arrest are even newsworthy, which I, I find very refreshing and comforting. It's it, God is in charge is the hidden message. Here's what Martin Luther said. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, of Christ coming safely to his hour. Not this time, but in six months. Um, He says, Jesus' entire armor, you know, body armor, Jesus' entire armor was a little hour of time granted to him until his crucifixion. That hour was not yet at hand, and since it was not, all the designs of his enemies against him were futile. (laughs) Do you see the implication for you? God is proven to be able. He is able to help you. He's a heavenly father. He's a father who wants to help you, but he's a heavenly father who is able to help you. And I, I, I suggest that you carry that around with you all week, that God um, is proven to be able, or as it says in Psalm 138.8, God will fulfill his purpose for you. All right, our second point. Uh, Jesus goofs up the church website. Um, Verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am coming, where I am, you cannot come. Now, can you imagine a hipster church doing a series on that? Or can you imagine one of these, uh, you know, assemblies of God scrolling signs out on the highway um, with, with that on it? Um, Jesus, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Well, that goose up the, that goose up the brochure. Um, I, remember verse 33, <clears throat> I'll be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You remember the complaint of the people. Um, they go um, in verse 27, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, is this Christ? Is this the Christ? I mean, really, is this the Messiah? Because we know where he came from. You know, we, we know where he was born. We know his family. He's some guy that grew up. He was a carpenter's son. You're really saying that this is the Messiah because we know where he came from. Um, that's the complaint of the people. And so Jesus responds basically by saying, hey, if you're so interested in my origin, let me tell you this. Halfway through verse 28, I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. What's he talking about now? I mean, he's talking about his origin. Oh, we know where he came from. Oh, you think you know where I came from? I came from the divine. I came from God. I am God. So he's talking about the origin there. What's he talking about now? He's talking about the future now. He's talking about the future. He's talking about the mission. He's talking about the mission's end. In verses 33 and 34, he says, I'll be with you a little longer. I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going back to heaven. You're going to seek me. You're not going to be able to find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And uh, the people hear quite clearly they hear what he's saying. They're not like, mm, we're confused by that, Jesus. What, what is this strange thing you say? In verse 36, it says this. They go, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and hear me, uh, seek me, you will not find me where I am, you cannot come. Now, I know that I just contradicted myself, <laughs> but what I mean is this. They're hearing him clearly. They're not hearing Jesus go, they're hearing what he's saying. It's registering with him. They're puzzling over it. Now, I came across a couple of views on how to interpret this. And um, the first is basically uh, is that Jesus is speaking to the immediate, and he's saying, hey, I got to go, everybody. Um, you know, they're trying to kill me, and so I need to leave, and so 
cha-cha, here I go. Um, that's one view. I think that's a ridiculous view. Um, aren't verses 33 and 31 connected? Jesus says, I'll be with you a little longer than I'm going to go back to him who sent me. Um, in verse 31, it says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? There's, there's, this, there's this, um, this continuity of who Jesus is that he's been sent and that he's going back to uh, him uh, who, who sent him. Um, and so a second interpretation of this is that Jesus is speaking simply of keeping um, with, with God's plan. Um, and, uh, you know, it applies to you and me because the enemy is scary, but the enemy is not deadly. Um, let's, let's pause and apply this to our lives. This guy, uh, Herman Ritterboss, um, I haven't used this book a, a ton, but it is, it is, there's some rich stuff in here. And, and let me read you this quote. When I, the first time I read it, you're going to go, what? And then I'll break it down a little bit. He says this, what the evangelist wants to demonstrate is how utterly irreconcilable Jesus' self-revelation as the Christ is with everything the Jews in Jesus' day and that of his own could conceive or were inclined to accept. All right, I know that's a, that's a lot of syllables. But basically what he's saying is John, the gospel writer, wants to show us how utterly irreconcilable Jesus' claims are. Um, they're, they're more common to us. When Jesus calls God Father, we go, oh, yeah, we do too. We were instructed to, and we pray to our Heavenly Father all the time. Wildly irreconcilable for this hearing audience. When Jesus claims to be the Son of God, well, we sing praises to him all the time and, and, and rejoice in his divinity. And we, we, we think of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But I mean, he's laying a, doctor, a new doctrine on them. It is blowing their minds. That's what, that's what Ritterboss is saying, is everything the Jews could possibly conceive or were inclined to accept in that day, Jesus is shaking it all up. He's blowing their minds. Well, that's them. I'm saying for you and me and for, our, for the culture at large, for our world, the world in which we live, that's also the gospel. Everything about the gospel is what you couldn't conceive and what you are not inclined to accept. When we hold up the Savior who lived 2,000 years ago and died a martyr's death on a cross and we go, believe in him, you'll have eternal life. I mean, the world goes, what? Are you people nuts? It can't even be conceived. It's not something that one would be inclined to accept. Um, and let's, let's suppose um, you're, you're not a religious person, and uh, you're here, you're not a Christian, you're not a religious person, but at least you're open to the idea of some kind of divine, glowing, voodoo eyeball in the sky that you know, could, you know, controls something, and when you're scared and sad and, and granny's dying, you pray. Um, uh, and you believe in a sense of right and wrong. If there were this being out there that's above the cosmos, that's above everything, that has some kind of ultimate standard out there, if you could conceive a plan to make yourself right with that God, um, wouldn't it be something like this? I got to live the best life I can live. I got to live my best life now. That's what I got to do. <laughs> I got to live the best life I can do, and I got I to gotta have a warm heart towards social issues, and I got to pitch in on community products, projects, and I got to help my neighborhood, and I, I got to have a, a heart for the poor. Those are all fine things, 
but don't you but but as a vehicle to make myself right with this this right or wrong standard out there i got to focus on those things isn't that what you would conceive isn't that the the plan that you'd cook up well man i got to pull it together and do better i just got to do better if i'm going to if i'm going to please this this being out there that has a standard of right and wrong and how about this i i i ought to be really sincere about it too oh i'm sincerely trying to live the best life I can, or even remorseful. Oh, I'm ashamed of things that I've done. I'm ashamed of this thing or that. I understand the consequences of my actions and so on. Um, And I'm just really, really trying to be the best person I can be. Isn't that what you would conjure up? You'd come up with some kind of plan like that. The gospel is wild. The gospel is contrary. The gospel holds something up and you go, whoa, you are asking me to believe a lot like uh, a homeless guy 2,000 years ago who was murdered. And I put my trust in him, and he substituted his righteous life for my sin, and that's going to make me okay with this. I mean, f- friends, if, if um, God didn't do a saving work in your life, if God didn't make you alive, if God didn't show you truth, if God didn't give you the ability to grasp that, would you? Heck no, you wouldn't. What I'm saying to you is this, this inconceivable, wild, amazing gospel um, is, a, is a matter of faith. And it's, uh, it's, if, you, if, you, if you weren't made able to believe it, you wouldn't believe it. All right, let's go to our last point. Um, the irony of God's intent. Um, verse 35, there's this like little nugget in here that I just... I love, Um, and it also speaks to God's sovereignty. Check this out. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Now, what the heck does that mean, the dispersion? What's he he talking about? Well, um, you remember when, um, when, you know, go back a a couple thousand years, when, um, when, Oh, not that long. But um, when Israel and Judah are carried off into captivity, remember the kingdom splits and Israel's carried off, and then finally Judah's carried off too. And there's a dispersion. The Jews are pulled out of their home and they're dispersed among the, the pagan lands. And uh, there's, a, there's, there's a dispersion. They're dispersed. Well, there are still Jews who are dispersed. Um, and. Um, there are Jews all over the place, Jews in all kinds of places of Roman occupation, Jews, Jews all over places that aren't Palestine. And so they're going, okay, where's Jesus going to go? Is he going to go hide among the Greeks? Is that what he's going to do? He's going to leave here and go up to where, you know, the dispersion and go hide among the Greeks? Is That's the question. What's ironic about that and so awesome is this? When the, when the gospel goes out itself, Pentecost happens, and the gospel goes out, where does it go? These exact places. Isn't that amazing? So it, it's, it's all, and by the way, John the gospel writer is writing it, and it's, it's many years later. Is that not awesome? That, that they're going, where's, where's this Jesus going to go? Uh, the, the Greeks? Well, that's exactly where the gospel ends up going. That's exactly where they end up getting sent, and that's exactly where the church ends up being planted. And it uh, fulfills and punctuates God's statement to Abraham that uh, the peoples of the world would be blessed through the Jews. Is that not awesome? 
I mean, it just shows you that uh, for, all these, for all these rumblings and activities that God is still running the entire course of history, um, it's, it's, it's ironic and it's like uh, pleasantly laughable. You can laugh at it and go, yeah, God's in control the whole time. It's almost like there's humor in that. Um, all right, last thing, verse 33. When Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Let me ask you a very simple question. Who does it sound like is running the show? Jesus. Um, he's not like, oh, I hope I can get out of here because they're trying to kill me. I'm going to try to make good my escape and try to make it till my, the, you know, my appointment with the cross six months from now. No, he goes, he knows what's going on. I'll be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Fully self-aware, fully in charge of the situation. And so I ask you, who do you think is in charge of your situation right now? When you see these gospel events happen in the scriptures, they're, they're there for a reason. They're not there for a linear, linear history. They're not there to check off little boxes of of this and that. They're, they're to communicate things to us about who God is, the way he behaves, and how we can be safely rested in him and his activity for our good in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, even curious parts of it that, um, w- with a little reflection, show us marvelous things about you and the way you move and um, who, who our Christ is and who we are in that Christ and um, how affected we are, uh, not, just, not just for a safe place in eternity, but in the here and now. Um, we're safe in, in your grip now. So, Lord, I pray that uh, whatever's true would stick to these souls and whatever's folly would fall away. And uh, I pray for a good and godly week for us all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming, you guys.